The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for listening. This week, we look at two women who, in different ways, have not received due recognition for their achievements as artists. A bit later, you'll hear my interview with Jan Howarth, who has a retrospective show at the Pallant House Gallery in Chichester, a gallery with one of the best collections of modern British art in the UK. But first, Dora Maar. Maar was one of the key women artists in the Surrealist movement, exhibiting her photographs and photo montages in several of the seminal Surrealist shows in the mid-1930s. But after 1936, when she met Pablo Picasso, she became more famous as his mistress and muse than as an artist in her own right. Picasso characterised her as the weeping woman and said that in portraying her in this way, he was obeying a vision that forced itself on him. For her part, Ma said of Picasso that all his portraits of me are lies. Although Ma continued to make work, particularly paintings, in the 50 years that she lived after her breakup with Picasso in 1944, it's only since her death in 1997 that her work as an artist has been gradually reassessed. Now, after it began at the Centre Pompidou in Paris earlier this year, a major survey of Ma's work has just opened at Tate Modern in London. I went there and took a tour of the show with the curator, Emma Lewis. Emma, Dora didn't begin life called Dora, or indeed Ma, did she? Tell us a bit about her background. No, she was born uh, Henriette Theodora Markovic um, to a Croatian father who was an architect and a French mother who owned a fashion boutique. And uh, the name Dora Ma came about for a number of reasons. Um, partly she, she told her father that there was another photographer who was active who had the name Markovic, so Ma made sense. Um, Dora had also been a kind of name of affection throughout her childhood. And she publishes under Dora Markovic, um, Theodora, um, but Dora Ma is the name that sticks. Um, she didn't begin her artistic life as a, as a photographer, did she? She studied painting. She went, in fact, went to the decorative arts school. That's right. She was. Um, she had the desires to be a fine art painter. Um, when she told her parents this as a young woman, or as a teenager, in fact, they advised her that it was quite a precarious career choice and that she would do well to settle on something like the, uh, the decorative arts instead. And so she went to Committee de Dames and she studied um, classes in the applied arts. She also took classes in painting as well and in photography, which was, of course, an applied art. Um, and it was really then that things changed for her. She was in sort of milieu of lots of young photographers at that time so she, yeah. she met some of the key photographers of the 20th century didn't she quite early on absolutely she um she shared a dark room with Brassai at one point although then he's really in the early stages of his career as well she became an assistant to the american fashion photographer harry ossett mearson and her talent and aptitude for the medium was really identified by um, an art critic named marcel zahar and also the very influential photographer and editor um called manuel Suget. she seems to have had an enormously precocious talent for photography because it, she'd only just taken it up when she actually started mm. publishing photographs and, and showing them, right? Well, she had a camera as, as, a, as a girl. And in fact, her parents, um, well, she was on um, uh, the ship uh, travelling between Buenos Aires and Paris. She would uh, photograph then. And actually, we can see in some of the works that she produces as a teenager, uh, the kind of style that we see later in her surrealist work, even like... Uh, intentional double exposures, playful use of shadows, attention to shape, form, architecture, all of these things which uh, become much more pronounced as her career develops. The, the earliest room in the show focuses much more on her, sort of, on her sort of commercial activities, but also 
the key thing about her commercial activities is, like you say, that there's a sort of clear sort of sensibility in there to mm. explore, to push the edges of that of that of that format. Can you, can you tell us something about that? I mean, we're looking, for instance, at an image of Nush Eluar here. Nush Eluar is a great surrealist member of the surrealist group, mm-hmm. um, and and on the, on the one hand, we have a sort of straight image portrait photograph of mm. her, but then also next to it, we have this photo montage in which a spider's web has been overlaid over Nush's face. Yeah, this is a really fantastic example of the way in which uh, Ma's surrealist sensibilities also uh, were very apparent in her commercial commissions. Um, We don't know exactly where this image was um, published, but it's believed to have been made for an anti-aging cream called rather fantastically The Year's Lie in Wait For You. Um, And as you say, she's overlaid two different images to a very dramatic effect, and it really represents the innovation um, at the heart of Ma's work. Also the kind of the glamour and the dark gothic element to much of it. I mean, throughout this room that we're looking at, you, some of it you really can't believe that it's a, mm. a commercial photograph. I mean, there's an image of a of a, a woman with shampoo in her hair mm. that looks directly like a immediately like a much more like a surrealist photograph than it than could ever be used for commercial purposes. Yeah, and the images that you see in this room they're really remarkable. And I mean, today we live in a completely image saturated world. Um, it, Back then, in the 1930s, this is a time when photographers are constantly, constantly pushing the the boundaries of the medium. And this is a time, you know, the modernist period, when photography is no longer being seen only as a tool of factual recording, but also as something that can really uh, play with and subvert reality. And um, the people who are commissioning photography, editors and advertisers, are really hungry for those kind of images. And so... Um, commercial commissions become a really important for, uh, forum for photographers like Ma. Now, um, I suppose if, if you know anything about Ma, mm. it's, you're likely to know that on the one hand she was part of a sort of glamorous artistic milieu, mm-hmm. and on the other hand that she, she was involved with a surrealist. One thing that's, I think, less well known about mm. her work is that she, was, she also did street photography, and we're just going to go and have a look at that work now. So we're now in a room where we see Dora Mars street photography mm. and we're actually facing two images made in London when mm-hmm. she was here in 1934. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're really striking about mm-hmm. this. For me, what strikes me is this, this extreme vulnerability of humanity amidst the sort of unforgiving city that surrounds them. It's true. Um, there's a certain um, stillness, even a quietude, to some of Dora Mars street photography where she's really honed in on um, individual figures and the city streets. We're standing in front of a photograph here of a a well-dressed gentleman holding out his hand um, in what we think uh, is probably the City of London uh, or maybe Oxford Circus. And he's holding a sign that says, "No, no dull work wanted. And this is a really poignant reminder, I think, of the particular economic moment in which Mara is working. Next to that photograph, there's an image of a very heavily cloaked very elderly woman selling lottery tickets sitting under the sign for Midland Bank at Oxford Circus. And again, it's a very, um, it's a very compelling image because the sitter is making eye contact with the camera and it speaks to this moment in which Mara is active. She's, like you say, she is making eye contact. She's almost shying away from the camera, but mm. she meets our gaze so mm. sort of powerfully, doesn't she? Mm. Um, and, and you see that throughout these images. That, that, that there's very often 
uh, individuals or small mm. groups. She doesn't tend to do these sort of sort of vast street scenes involving um, large numbers of people. She seems yeah. to very very much focus on the smaller, intimate moments on the street. Yeah, exactly. So she had a Rolleiflex camera, um, portable, relatively lightweight for the time, and she was able to respond uh, quite immediately to the figures that she encountered on the street. Um, it's important to note that she's working in, in two specific contexts. One is the development of the documentary mode, as we now call it, and the other is the uh, political and social climate. So this is a time of, of real um, unrest and instability in France, certainly, and of the economic depression elsewhere in Europe. And, um, and all of those things Mar captures in her work. To me, what's so fascinating, and you see it throughout this show, is that she's she's involved in all these strands at the mm. same moment so on the one hand you have the fashion photography yeah. the commercial photography then you've got the street photography and now we're going to look at some of these sort of more surreal elements that she finds in mm. everyday life in the next trip so again we're looking at photographs that were made on the street but in these there's always a quirky element or a pronounced surreal quality mm. to some of these it, what, this one is on, on the sort of quirkier side I'd say and this is a, a sort of what is it a wicker kangaroo I think it's a wicker maybe a wire a kangaroo that for some reason or another um, Doromar encountered on the streets of London. This is a photograph which has appeared in more than one of my dreams in recent weeks. Um, it's so bizarre and it's just one example of the way in which Doromar used the camera to capture the absurd in the everyday. There's her very straight street photography where she's photographing people in impoverished circumstance, but she's also got a great eye for uh, the absurd. There's a wit and a playfulness to her work. I mean, she's surrounded at this stage. She's, mm. she's involved with the surrealist. She's familiar with the sort of Breton doctrine, the very mm -hmm. clear ideas that he's expressing about things like religion and sex and other things. Mm. Does she, she seems to have an innate feel for it to me. She seems to be able to sort of spot that in these everyday mm. walks through the streets. She, she seems to be able to find the images which correspond with some of those theoretical ideas. Yeah, it's, it's as if when she became associated with the surrealist or, or met the surrealist through her political leanings, um, it was a natural fit. I mean, the the kind of thing that her eye had been drawn to, which we see even from her work as a teenager, just fits so perfectly with the surrealist preoccupations. Um, there's certain um, subject matter that appear again and again, like uh, the sea, uh, even coral shells, subject matter like blindness. These all appear again and again in her work, and, and they're so consistent with surrealist themes and ideas. I guess the most surreal of all her work is the photo montages, and we're going to move on to those next. Now, we're opposite one of her most famous photo montages, which is called The Pretender, and this was shown, I know, in certain surrealist exhibitions in the mid-1930s. What's really fascinating about this is you show how this photo montage was drawn from her own history as a street photographer. Tell yes. us about it. So we can see on the, the right-hand side here a photograph that Dorama took on the streets of Barcelona. It's a group of children playing, and a boy is doing a kind of tremendously athletic kind of backflip. He's very bent over, and she has used that image um, within a surrealist montage. She's inverted the photograph of the boy, and she's placed him against um, an image of the vaults at the Palace of Versailles. She's also retouched over the windows in the palace so that they appear to be kind of bricked off. And by inverting these two images, it appears to be almost in kind of an endless circular motion. It's very disturbing. We don't know what's going on. And this is just a kind of typical way in which Ma reused not only images by others, but also drew on her street photography and her photo montage. I'm really conscious looking at these images at how apt 
photo montage was as a medium to express surrealist ideas that in a way it's almost like the perfect surrealist medium it is and I think uh, the surrealists had at first been unsure how photography could fit into their medium um, but it was in works that really dislocated images from their original context um, or in, in collage and photo montage that they found the answer there are ways of just creating very surprising um, surreal irrational um, examples really so let's look at an image that is part of her sort of surrealist period, but is actually not a photo montage, but an image which uh, has confounded critics mm. for a long time. <laughs> there, you know, there was a lot of spe- this is called this is a work called Portrait of Ubu, mm. and for, for you know if you look at the critical um, history of this work, people yep. are trying to work out what the hell it is. They think yep. it's a mandrake root, or, yep. or some sort of strange misshapen vegetable. Yeah, what what are we looking at? <laughs> we think that we're looking at an armadillo fetus, and it's claws, it's kind of pose it certainly seemed to suggest that Ma didn't ever want to reveal what this was she wanted to, to retain some of its mystery but certainly it becomes um, one of the most important photographs uh, that's included in the major surrealist exhibitions throughout the 1930s she i mean this i think speaks to how brilliant she was as a photographer because yeah. it's 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 the way she shot it we think it's probably taken as a, you know a specimen in a jar right i mean how would she have had access to it otherwise that's what we think yeah yeah but but what she's done is so on the one hand she shot it in three quarter profile mm-hmm. there's this extraordinary raking light yeah. so that you it lights up the claws for instance mm. and also it's the sort of that close up and that sort of mistiness mm. she was a brilliant technical photographer apart from anything else yeah. I'm she? glad that you mentioned the shadow in Portrait of Uber because shadows are something that are really important within her work her first uh, commission one of her first commissions sorry was for a book about uh, Les Saint-Michel Monastery and um, in that work you can really see her attention to light and shadow she makes use of that to very dramatic effect in her depictions of the gothic architecture and that appears again in her work for the Couturier Heim Um, and again in in works like this where she's using shadow to uh, create an almost unsettling effect that accentuates the subject now we're, we're at the point now where we come to a rupture in her life and work uh, the moment where she meets Picasso so we're going to go into the next room which is all about that relationship when did she meet Pablo Picasso? Um, so accounts vary but uh, we believe that it is uh, either right at the end of 1935 or the beginning of 1936 one of the things which really strikes me when I'm in this gallery and we'll talk about a couple of specific works in a moment is that up to now we've had this kind of surge this extraordinary fertile period of creativity in her life where she is grappling with photography and photo montage in this extremely creative way Mm. when we get into this room of course we're looking at Picasso's work but we're also seeing a massive shift in her work Mm. she turns again to painting to what extent did Picasso force her back to painting Mm. and to what extent was it a willing return to a medium that she did study? I mean we believe that it was a willing return as you said she had always harboured ambitions to be a painter and we have to remember that at this time you couldn't be an artist and a photographer the the two were seen as mutually exclusive uh, however creative um, uh, a register it could also be Um, so to be a a fine artist if we can use that term Dora Maar felt that painting perhaps was was the route to take Um, and she's with Picasso he's encouraging her and it's also an opportunity for her to really kind of regain her confidence in this medium by emulating his style 
right. Because that, that's very clear, isn't it? They were, we're looking at right now at a picture of Picasso, mm-hmm. which absolutely is Picassian in the sense that he's, she's mm. using his language, that it's that sort of um, mm. post-Cubist portraiture that, that, that we see in yeah. his paintings of the same yeah. period. Exactly. She's really developing her, her own style over a number of years. And, um, and likewise, you know, he's learning from her. There's a, a very complex darkroom technique called cliché vert, which combines photography and printmaking. Picasso had tried this in a very informal way in 1932, um, but he was never um, accomplished in the darkroom. Although he'd taken photographs, the chemistry of the darkroom was something that he was by no means um, kind of au fait with. And with Dora Ma, he's able to learn this technique. Of course, the other side of their relationship beyond the work is the mm. life. And there's a painting that Dora makes at this time, which we're looking at now, mm. which very clearly portrays what's going on. So mm. tell, us what, tell us about this work. This is a fabulous canvas that's been shown um, in public only twice before and never before in the United Kingdom. It's called The Conversation, itself a very loaded title, and it depicts Dora Maar back-to-back with Marie-Therese Walter, who was the mother of Picasso's daughter, and someone that Picasso kept really uncomfortably close to the both of them uh, for the duration Quite of their literally, relationship. Right? I mean, Quite literally, right? Quite literally, yeah. You know, so living would, next door to the studio, essentially. Yes, she was, um, she was very present at the time. And we can only imagine how um, uncomfortable, frankly horrific, that would have been for both women. Um, it's traumatic. But we wanted to include this canvas because it's a way of expressing Dora Maar's uh, feelings on this moment in her life, but through her work. But also, there's a formal connection with Guernica, Picasso's mm. great work about the Spanish Civil War, isn't there? Because Dora contends that the electric light that we see at the top of this work mm. influences Picasso to include a similar mm. light in in Guernica's mm. great canvas. Well, there's many, many theories about Picasso's use of the electric light in Guernica. One is actually that um, the the studio light of Dora's that he used to illuminate the canvas as he worked uh, was one inspiration. Um, The lamp or the light, of course, metamorphoses from a sun and an eye. But interestingly, Dora Maar said um, in 1990 that she was the one that put an electric light in the painting first and he took the idea from her. And indeed, the canvas that we're standing in front of now by Dora Maar was made in January 1937. He begins work on Guernica in May of that year. I mean... Is it right that she was actually painting in that same studio, that very famous studio, where she also documented the creation of Guernica? Yes, so we have a negative in the exhibition which shows a canvas believed um, by experts to be by Dora Maar. And you can see in the background that Guernica is just visible, which means that, yeah, she was working on her canvases at the same time as he's making Guernica. That's quite unprecedented, isn't it, in terms of Picasso's access to, you know, the women in Picasso's life having access to his creative world. Yeah, it certainly sheds new light on the kind of dynamic in the studio at that time. Um, there's a real understanding, I think, through the works in this exhibition of Dorama as a professional um, in, in her relationship with Picasso because um, she is making work. She's um, got this very important commission to document his canvas as well. Um, and so it's not just about the personal relationship. It's about how they really can educate one another. I have to say that for me there's a point, this, this point in the show uh, is, it, uh, I feel sort of almost crushed by this um, extraordinary creation that we see in the photo montage mm. and, and the camera and then her shift to painting. Mm. It, for me it's a great disappointment because she was such an extraordinary photographer and yeah. photo montage creator. Mm. Um, 
you 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 show her her development through mm. painting in the next room through landscapes. Yes. But she, I mean, again, this is a, there's a myth about Dora that she somehow sort of became a recluse and that mm. was it. But she did continue to make work, didn't she? Yeah, I think so. Dora Maar's work has very much been broken into life pre and post Picasso. But we have to remember that their relationship broke down in the mid 1940s. She died in 1997, and she was making work really close to the end of her life. Um, and so the, the reason there's a real shift in her work in the mid-1940s, yes, perhaps it's in part uh, due to the breakdown of their relationship, but there's also, unfortunately, many other traumatic events in her life at that time. And perhaps most importantly, it's the end of the Second World War. Life in Paris, those surrealist circles are completely changed. Um, so we can wonder what happened if she never met Picasso, but we also have to think about the fact that what she was doing in the 1930s was the product of a very specific political, social and cultural moment. That's fascinating. But I'd like to go to a, what I think is a really delightful ending to the show mm. and look at these extraordinary photograms that she made, mm. we think, towards the end of her life. Yes, yeah. So as I say, I, I felt hugely uplifted when I came to this final room in, in the show because it seems to me that she's... Again, it's the darkroom returns, mm. and, and here is Dora again experimenting with prints, maybe not with the camera, mm. but with these wonderfully mysterious images that she yeah. makes yeah. Uh, using, using light. Can you tell us about these works? Well, at some point in the 1980s, we believe, Dora Maar went uh, into the darkroom and she began to make cameraless images. So she either traced light across photosensitized paper or she made photograms by placing objects on the surface, sometimes cutouts of figures. She would sometimes also use things like tinsel, even her rosary beads feature. And it's very consistent, or uh, there's a parallel with the approach to experimentation in the 1930s. And it's really interesting, I think, at this time, her biographer, Victoria Combalia, asked her about photography at this point in her life. And she said that although she was interested in, in making photographs, she wasn't interested in documenting the world outside. It was banal to her. It wasn't interesting in the, same, in the way that it had been in the 30s. Much like the work that we see in the 1930s, Dora Maar, right at the end of her career, is very interested in... Uh, manipulation of the photographic surface of negatives. There's around 40 uh, negatives that are held in the archive of the Pompidou, which really attest to that. She has scratched um, the negatives. She's used chemical to really break down the emulsion and to abstract the negatives. And you can see in the projection that we have in this last room some negatives and positive images as well that show how she has um, returned to her archive in a very, very innovative, creative way. So it feels like, to me, this feels like an, an assertion, of, almost like a summary of, of, of her career in the sense mm. that she, you know, she, obviously she did have clear aims to be a painter, but mm -hmm. in a way she fuses painting and photography right at the end of mm. her life. She really does, and I don't think that she would have got to the, um, the kind of gestural abstract photography had she not had this intense period of experimenting with mark making in other media as well. So she's using oil, she's using pastels um, while going out into the landscape in the south of France and making very abstract impressions of the landscape. Um, so there's a real journey that this exhibition traces, I think. Do you think with this show, finally, we can say that Dora Maar's going to emerge from Picasso's shadow? I really hope so. <laughs> I think it's high time. It, it's difficult for almost anyone who is in Picasso's close circle and not to be overshadowed by Picasso. Um, but now that we have this extraordinary access to so much of Dora Maar's work, um, and I think a real contemporary interest in 
looking at overlooked artists. Um, I, I'm sure and I, I hope that audiences will really enjoy getting to know Dora Maar's work. Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Dora Maar is at Tate Modern until the 15th of March 2020. We'll be back talking to Jan Howarth after this. The Russian artist Natalia Goncharova was a woman of many parts. As the recent retrospective of her work at Tate Modern perfectly showed, her artistic output was exceptionally wide-ranging, from parading the streets of Moscow in futurist body paint to designing ballet costumes and book covers. She was only 32 when, in 1913, she held her first solo exhibition in Moscow, displaying her trademark stylistic bravura in a diverse collection of more than 800 works, an approach described in awed tones as everythingism by her partner-husband Mikhail Larionov. A rare early work from that first one-woman show, Landscape Birch Trees, comes to Bonham's Russian sale at the end of November. As Bonham's head of Russian art, Daria Kristova, says, Natalia Goncharova was a remarkable woman, a visionary who challenged artistic, social and gender conventions. Landscape birch trees, with its heavy textural brushwork and vibrant colour palette, expresses both her interest in traditional Russian folk art and her idiosyncratic adaptation of futurism. For more information, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, a trivia question. Who did the cover of the Beatles' Sgt Pepper album? If you said Peter Blake, you're right, but only in part. Look at the album itself and it says this. Staged by Peter Blake and Jan Howarth, photographed by Michael Cooper. So it was a collaboration between three people. Yet in most cases, only Blake is credited, Cooper is barely mentioned, and Howarth's contribution is almost forgotten. Howarth and Blake were then married and both key figures in the pop art scene in swinging London. Howarth, who grew up in Los Angeles but came to London to study art in the early 1960s, showed at the trendy Robert Fraser Gallery in London and at Sidney Janis in New York. Well, now Howarth has a major retrospective show featuring works from the 60s and the decades since at the Pallant House Gallery in Chichester on the UK's south coast, which is where I went to meet her. Perhaps the most dramatic work in the show is a recent project, Work in Progress, made with her and Blake's daughter, Liberty Blake, who she refers to in the interview as Libby. The work riffs on the Sgt Pepper cover, but also attempts to correct some of its gender and racial imbalances. But I began the interview by asking Howarth about her background in Hollywood, with her art director father and ceramicist mother. Jan, I wonder if we could begin by going right back to the start and your life growing up in Hollywood, because your father and your mother were both very creative people, weren't they? Yes, they were. Um, I think my first memories are very much about um, being in my mother's pot shop, as she called it. Um, (laughs) And she was a ceramicist and she made figures and uh, had huge kilns and all the rest of it and had uh, six or eight people working for her at any given time. Uh, And uh, then my father was in the film industry and he would stand me up and make me pose for some sketch or storyboard he was doing and uh, talk about that. And, uh, and too, I, I was on the back lot quite a lot and on the sets um, with him. He would take me. He didn't seem to know that you don't take children to work. Um, he just did it. And, I mean, there were no other children around, but, but somehow scampering about the back lot and on sets was you know, what I got to do. <laughs> and did you feel yourself sort of taking in the the means of constructing visual images in that process? Yeah, I suppose I did. I've, I think I've not thought of it quite in that way. Yeah, I mean, because um, my mother was making three-dimensional uh, things in clay. My father was making film. 
uh, you know, narrative. Um, and I was going to the movies, you know, so I was seeing the end product of some of these things. And uh, certainly, you know, the uh, the sequential process was very, very open to me. I could see it from a lump of clay all the way through, you know, slip and the mold and, and all of that, that terminology was very, very familiar to me. And the kind of the arc that a piece of clay goes through, um, you know, all the way through to the firing and the glazing and so forth. And the fact that a woman was at the center of that running this business. Um, and then my father's side of it being that, um, you know, the the messy process of making a film in the first instance of carpenters and builders and, and sketches and drawings and, you know, um, the prop man and the messy prop room and the, the plaster castings and so forth. So um, that, but also that I, the funny part of that for me is that I think I took surrealism out of it, you know, that it was in a way all these substitute little figurines or substitute um, walnuts made of plaster, you know. <laughs> So, yeah. You studied for two years at the University of California in, in Los Angeles, but it seems to me that the big awakening in terms of your work was in London, both at the Courtauld and at the Slade. Is that right? Yeah, that that's right. I mean, I UCLA. I was still in the mode of of school. I mean, I loved UCLA. I mean, I was thriving, you know, in the atmosphere of um, being able to do American literature and English literature and study Greek, uh, ancient Greek, and um, forced to do geology, which I just fell in love with, and anthropology. I mean, it, it was it was fabulous to have real mental meat to chew on. But when I came to London, it, it was like um, a, a sort of dam burst of dreams, basically, that, that suddenly, you know, I was really using my brain or all my brain because it wasn't so much book learning that you then spouted out on an exam. Um, there was time to really think about things. And, and because I jumped into the middle of performance in as much as, you know, the first thing I wanted to do when I came here was go to the theater, go to musical, um, you know, string quartets at whatever it was, Wigmore Hall or something. Um, you know, it was that live culture of theatre that, that really grabbed my thoughts. And then, too, the underpinning um, that I take very seriously about the 60s of the emergence from World War II, but then through the voice of, you know, people uh, like... Um, you know, Osborne and Beckett and, and the playwrights, in a way, they set the stage for the common man being a star or being center stage. So, you know, that that you have that view of British society was so important in terms of, okay, young Beatles or Jerry and the Pacemaker, you can come onto the stage and be taken seriously. So, you know, that uh, that was important. But I think for me, the, the notion of... Um, the brain being alive, I, I feel that that's what happened for me. So it was it was really being able to use not just the left brain academic, you know, kind of um, acquiring of academic skills, but also then that more creative, more responsive, more, um, I don't know, you don't know where these ideas come from, and suddenly you actually have to recognize that visual kind of poetry that's in the other part of your mind. <laughs> now, at the Slade, a tutor said something to you which triggered... Uh, a very powerful response from you. Tell, tell me about that episode. 
Well, I, th I think the um, the world at that time, particularly in London, was dominated by the kind of um, male paradigm. Um, I wasn't used to that in California. I mean, I didn't um, I I didn't see it at first because I'd never experienced that before. I was blind to that fact because in California it wasn't like that. So I didn't know I wasn't equal, and gradually kind of like coming coming into consciousness I thought hey wait you know this is really kind of strange you know this what are these guys talking about you know that they have this sort of something this je ne sais quoi of you know we know paint and we know design and composition and well women just don't get that would be their attitude and I, I just sort of was you know puzzled by that thinking well it's just that person but um, one day one of the tutors came by my painting and I was becoming a little anxious, thinking, well, if I did go back to UCLA, I'd need credits. And um, so I said to him, uh, you know, I think maybe it would be good, a good idea for me next term to see if I can get credit for what I'm doing here um, in terms of what I would need to um, show in America. And I said, what would I need to do? Should I put my portfolio together um, so that that can be assessed and then put me on a kind of credit basis? And he said, well, no, no, not really. We um, we don't really ever look at the female um, portfolios. We just look at their photographs um, because they're here to keep the boys happy. And it was like, wait a minute, you know, it was such a, I mean, it, you, there's nothing you can say to that. All you can do is act. And so, you know, I mean, I took it that, oh, yeah, well, he's sort of old-fashioned empire type person who hasn't quite got the modern world yet. But but certainly that did go with other things that I had been experiencing. Um, and, you know, to be fair to the temperature of England at that time, women were doing very well in many fields. I mean, Mary Quant was excelling and there were designers and models and, you know, women that were, you know, in lead positions. It wasn't equal by any means, but, but certainly women were doing um, well in certain fields. And of course, we saw an explosion of, of that during the 60s. But it isn't right to say that the 60s were, you know, a big rebellion that was successful. I mean, the miniskirt is really not not for, you know, um, the feminist movement, really. We can say, oh, wait, you know, pantyhose or liberation. Well, no, they're not. They're showing your legs so that you are attractive and you froze to death in London wearing the clothes that we wore. You know, that wasn't good. <laughs> so. Now, in the exhibition here at Pound House, we see many of your early works and you can see the different ways in which you're using materials in really creative ways. So in, in particularly in the, in the old woman piece, for instance, and then in the Mae West piece. I wonder if you might talk about the way that you were approaching image making using these materials at that time. The work um, goes between a wall surface or a three-dimensional freestanding uh, figure. So if you're doing a wall piece, you're really doing, I, I thought of them as drawings. So it's a, a two-dimensional um, piece that I would do a big drawing and then I would cut the drawing as the pattern for a quilt um, or patchwork more properly. Um, so in that instance, you're using fabric flat um, I didn't particularly have any value system on, oh, this is a synthetic and this is a, you know, a cotton or a, a wool. Um, 
and I didn't really think too much about fade because I couldn't anticipate that. So, I mean, I used uh, fabrics for their color um, and they were existing uh, fabrics. And that's a big distinction between the early work and later work, which we maybe touch on. But the existing fabric mode, um, I was at the mercy of whatever was at Selfridges or um, wherever I was buying fabric. So that's one kind of avenue. And then when it comes to three-dimensional, um, a lot of the time, I, you know, if I'm making was making a face, jerseys were the way to go because they were so um, sort of flexible as going round corners. And of course, if you're making a face, you've got a lot of corners to go around. So, so thinking of something like the maid, um, which isn't in the exhibition, but I wanted to make. Um, the ideal woman was the notion, and I wanted multiple uh, references to um, ethnicity. Um, that was layers and layers of silk stockings. So um, that will be a, that will accommodate the twist of the corner of a mouth or a nostril um, in a way that, say, a flat fabric wouldn't. But then. I like the challenge or the disassociation from reality that you can get with a woven. Um, so a figure like Frank, um, the old man that I made uh, early 60s, um, that butts up against the difficulty of doing that. And, and it distorts reality to a certain degree that, you know, is interesting. So, um, yeah, so different uses. Um, it might be that you're upholstering something in the Mae West thing or doing bar relief or going to flat. So it's it's kind of a, uh, it depends on what the idea is and what the three dimensions that you're trying to achieve are. So It's interesting that you chose Mae West. I mean, you, you obviously knew Hollywood stars as you were growing up. You were, on, as you say, on the back lots of these of the studios. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you choose Mae West? What was, I mean, she's, she's also a figure, obviously, in surrealism. You know, we think of mm-hmm. Dali's lips, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so um I wonder about what was the power of Mae West that made you want to make an, an image of her? Well, she's not obvious, an obvious choice, and I, I don't really like doing the obvious. So um, my choices would avoid certain cliches, what I would consider a cliche. Um, and Mae West interested me because she was smart. You know, she had a brain. It wasn't just a look. Um, and she wasn't a particularly attractive woman, but she, uh, or a pretty woman, she was attractive. And, you know, the idea of her boldness and her, her renegade nature, um, she said, uh, she said the only other woman I would even think of possibly being is um, Mabel Stark, who tamed lions. So, she, you know, it's that kind of thinking and her, her, her humor is just devastatingly funny. And so I liked her sharpness, you know. And so to me, here was a woman that was not conventionally beautiful and yet she rose to stardom. She wrote her own scripts. She was this terrific maverick character. That's interesting. To me, the the Dolly Bird, you know, vacuous, you know, empty headed, not full of character woman isn't isn't something that I would be interested in doing. It's not that that person is bad or anything. It's just that it it wouldn't be stimulating enough. And unless you kind of have that sense of really wanting to do something there's you know it's not the right energy (laughs) um let's talk about sergeant pepper of course there is the old woman that is in the exhibition is it's a version of a work that is part of that gathering on the front cover of sergeant pepper's album um your your role in that was 
hugely significant. It is often regarded as a Peter Blake image. Can you tell me about, on the one hand, your role in it, and then also about the sort of reception of that work since? Well, I, I think, um, I mean, Libby and I find this too with the, the big mural, that it's often difficult for people to um, get inside the idea of collaboration. I mean, where does one person leave off and where does another begin and how these influences, you know, um, you know, where do we establish credit, where are the prejudices for credit and things like that. So, you know, without getting into the, the diatribe of that, the the later things than the 50-year anniversary, everybody's claiming authorship of Sgt. Pepper. So I was, I was kind of sit, kind of chuckling in the side thinking, okay, I'm the person who didn't do 50% of Sgt. Pepper. I did the other 50%. <laughs> you know, so it's... And, and then there's Paul. So it's, it, Paul says he did 100%. Peter says he did 100%. I say I did 50%. So it's a 250% cover. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever. And, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, Sgt. Pepper is also the product of um, media. Um, you know, it has been exposed and sold and had media of e- EMI and all of that behind it. Um, so this was the first explosion in the 60s of those kind of media ideas of people getting famous through a magazine or people becoming well-known and getting, you know, bigger paychecks because they were on television. So that's important to take into account on this thing that is called an icon. And I did begin to take that into account in 2003, particularly because Rolling Stone said, okay, we're going to give you the 100 top albums. Guess what's top? It's Sgt. Pepper. And I was thinking, you know what? It's time to evaluate that. So I sat down by my fire in Sundance and I thought, okay, how many women are on this cover? And there were 12, six of whom were fictitious characters, petty girls, pinups, Shirley Temple three times. The only women on the cover were chosen by Peter and myself. Um, the Beatles didn't choose any women. The idea of choice on the cover was that the Beatles were to choose their heroes. They didn't choose enough, so Peter and I chose the rest. Um, so the Beatles really only chose 30 to 40 percent of the, the heads that are on there. Peter and I really did the rest. What sort of ethnic diversity is on the cover? We have Sonny Liston and we have George's Gurus, but but... Basically, what is what's that add up to? We haven't got any blues musicians chosen by the Beatles. We have no rock and roll. Um, you know, that's really significant. The black voice in America with rhythm and blues and black, that's a, a, a game changer. You know, never mind jazz. You know, so so the idea that, um, the, that the diversity wasn't there, that social activists really kind of don't appear there, um, that the relevance of the people there, there are literary references that are significant. Um, but for the most part, the cover is a cover by young people who don't know that much. And I think reviewing it all that time later was really kind of interesting because I had to reckon that I had grown up, you know, and I knew more. And what I then recognized in the cover were the gaps. And so then I I persuaded someone in Salt Lake to give up a wall, and we did a big mural called SLC Pepper, which was meant to have a, a gender balance, so 50% women, 50% men, and that it would be uh, catalysts for change. So people who actually impacted social development. Um, and so that was very important to me. And I think, you know, Sergeant Pepper... Uh, holds its ground for the 60s as a representation of the 60s, which had a good deal of 
you know, sort of fripperies in the thinking. You know, there was a lot that was light. We can't lionize the 60s as a big sort of feminist revolution. It wasn't. Um, we can't lionize it as huge breakthrough. There were a lot of losses. If you count the losses on Sergeant Pepper, there's Robert Fraser died of HIV. John was shot. Mal, uh, the bodyguard, um, was shot. Uh, Michael Cooper died of an overdose. His wife. We should say Michael Cooper was the photographer who actually took that image. So again, another collaborator on this on this right. on this very collaborative project. Right. And and again, uh, you're stressing collaboration. That's extremely important because you know you peck at that. You know, little things come in. There was a big peck that took Hitler out. John's uh, that was on John's list of heroes was was Hitler. There's no way that is in any way allowable or or okay. There is no way to process that. You have to say John had clay feet um, if he was able to make that choice. Um, so, um, you know, we can overlook these things, <laughs> you know, and kind of pass over them as if, oh, it was the, you know, the folly of youth. Hitler is not the folly of youth. It's really a stupid decision. So that had to go. So you you know, all of those things were were important that way. Um, it was important to check with people to say, do you mind if you're on the cover? That was Brian Epstein st stepping in and thinking, oh, my goodness, we could get sued. <laughs> and, um, of course, they didn't check with the photographers who took the pictures of people who were on there. I wonder about that. <laughs> <laughs> The enduring questions and and conundrums of that image go on forever, don't they? But what's brilliant about this show is that you have a work which very clearly evokes that image, but is very much of today. And 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 you talk about activism is directly being used as a kind of activist image in 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 our times. Tell us about it. Um, well, the the mural um, that that we have in um, reproduction form in the exhibition at Pallant House. Um, is called Work in Progress. And um, it arose out of a comic strip that I did for a show in Wolverhampton um, that was called Mannequin Defectors. And the Mannequin Defectors, without describing the comic strip in detail, are, are marching in front of a, a, a bit of uh, civic art or street art. Um, and it's a mural of women um, who are of interest or of accomplishment. Um, and eventually those became women who were, are um, catalysts within the arts and sciences and social activism. And the idea in the, um, in the piece was that it would be uh, a mural of you know, women that in the comic frame was only like three inches by seven inches. And when I came to draw these faces in, in this street um, uh, scene, um, I was pretty good on women artists, pretty good on literary women, but knew nothing about science, nothing about uh, medicine, and had to do some research. And I thought, this is terrible. I mean, if I don't know this, you know, there are a lot of people that don't know this. And so... I approached a friend um, called Jarlin Dreyfus and said, Jarlin, you know, I think it'd be a really good idea in Salt Lake that we do another mural <laughs> and that we do this. And she and I tried to sort of forward this project and it didn't really happen. And, um, you know, for years, I mean, from 2008, you know, th we muttered about it every so often. And then I had a meeting with Diane Stewart, who runs uh, Modern West Fine Art in uh, Salt Lake City. And I said, oh, this is another idea I had. I think it might be good to kind of forward. And Diane said, we have to do this now. And she just 
did it. She got the money to back it up, and um, it it took off. And we uh, produced a mural that now is 50, 60 feet long, um, and it's um, fifteen panels that are eight foot by four foot. Um, and we have it in in vinyl reproduction form, and we have it in the original collage form that was done by my daughter Liberty Blake. Um, she collaged all the paper heads that were created in oh dozens of workshops with uh, women and men from all walks of life, um, and uh, mostly non-artists. And we use the stencil graffiti form. Um, uh, of cutting a stencil from a photograph and um, then the participants in the uh, workshop then stencil themselves, pick their paper, pick their paints, all of that. Um, and then Libby takes that product and then makes this um, wonderful collage. Um, and, and and you've actively taken this on the Women's March in 2017 in Washington? Mm-hmm. Yes, we, um, <laughs> there was a bus from Utah and one from Philadelphia and we, we started all together from Philadelphia eventually and uh, and oh, we had such a great time. It was it was a, a, one of the best moments of living on this planet, as far as I'm concerned. It was just amazing. Uh, you can't you can't begin to describe what the feeling of that that march was like. We were all so devastated by the election, and the mural went from being this what we thought was a celebration to the first um, woman president that it would be the backdrop for that kind of thing and the, and probably appear in a museum in uh, uh, Washington uh, that is on the table at this present time called the Women's Museum. Um, it, and it all crashed to the floor. And suddenly, I mean, the day after the election, I went into a museum where the, museum, where the, the mural was hung and just stood in front of it and thought, Oh my God! What's just happened? And and you know, I looked at these women, and it was the most strange moment because it was like they were in revolt suddenly. Instead of coming together in celebration, they were protesting, and I felt like it was saying, you know, get off your ass, you silly girl, you know, get working, you know. So, <laughs> so it transformed into this other mural, and and suddenly we were saying, yes, we're going to go on this march, which was outrageous for me to do that in the middle of, you know, the winter. And um, and uh, so we we went and we carried it up Pennsylvania Avenue and, you know, would stop every so often on a corner and hold up four of them or however many. And we got lost and lost part of the mural somewhere else. And so <laughs> it was pretty amazing. And, um, you know, I, uh, it's not life-changing. It was life-enhancing, um, that experience. So, yeah. And it was also at the Sundance Film Festival um, rally and also at a uh, march that went up to the Capitol in uh, Salt Lake City. So it's it's been around. It's been to 24 places in uh, three years, 24 venues and galleries, museums and so forth. So, yeah. One thing I was really conscious of standing in front of it is that everybody's individual experience of it will be different in the sense that I'm recognising certain people I recognise certain mm-hmm. British literary figures yeah. like Jane Austen and, yeah. and yeah. Um, Charlotte Bronte for and instance and then there are political true. figures and or, you know people like Michelle Obama and things like that but, mm-hmm. I, but I was conscious of how few faces I recognise and it was it just brought home to me that there are great 
heroines across mm-hmm. the world and across time mm-hmm. who are unknown to me mm-hmm. and everybody to a certain extent will experience that same feeling in front of you. It's, it's a call to kind of educate yourself as much yeah. as anything else, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's it, it's that horrible moment of realising what you don't know. And I mean, that's the reverse of what we take to most artworks. It's a, a kind of question of what we know, how sophisticated we are, how we understand it, you know, all of those things. And this is meant to be an unpleasant shock, you know, that I don't know this. I don't know her. And of course, we don't always recognize people by their faces. We may know the Brontes and not be familiar with what their faces are individually. But I think this sea that especially if you see all 15 of them, this sea of women um, and you think, oh, my, you know, you're overwhelmed by that. All the the heads are over life size so that you can't really in the mural you you won't stand up close to it you step back and they then remain big because and so that was deliberate to keep them large so that you stand back and the these heads are are impactful um even though they're reducing because of perspective um and and it's accusing it's accusing you in a way um and i love that that it's a thing of not knowing you know that that minute of insecurity where you have to reckon reckon with that and and it's true for me too I mean I was word perfect on seven panels of knowing every single head just like that and now I have not lectured in front of it for a while and I need to upgrade again you know so it's um yeah it's really it's important I think that the stories connected with these curious women who had everything against them it's not that they just had to normally achieve stuff they had to go through you know treacle to get there you know it's a battle so you know that's important i mean we look at mother jones and we say her house burned down all her children died of scarlet fever and her husband she was a four foot ten this little powerful Irish woman, you know, who led a labor union movement. She said, I'm not a humanitarian. I'm a hellraiser, you know. And so it's it's that. I mean, she rose literally out of ashes, you know. So that that takes so much spirit. And so we have really to take our hats off to these women who survived enough to make these accomplishments happen that they did, you know. Jan, that's a great moment to end. Thank you so much. You're very kind. Thank you for doing the interview. Jan Howarth, Close Up, is at Pallant House Gallery until the 23rd of February 2020. You can read all the latest art and heritage news on our website at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find in the App Store. On the website, you can find the subscription to suit you so that you can read the art newspaper across multiple platforms. While there, you can also subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Click the newsletter link at the top right of our homepage and do sign up for our new monthly newsletter, Market Eye, with comment and analysis every month from our market journalists in London and New York. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And if you've enjoyed it, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio and we're on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mihalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor. Thanks to Emma and to Jan and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.